We're, we're going to begin a teaching series today called Knowing God. And um, of every, I, I'm pretty sure every list of the top 10 books that Christians ought to read include this book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's a classic, um, was written a few decades ago, um, but it still commends itself as almost required reading for followers of Christ. So I'm going to take you through this book in terms of following the chapter titles and the, the content of the book we will interact with, um, along with the scriptures, and talk with one another for a few months about knowing God. So where we started was to talk about Jesus. So we said, suppose we know nothing, suppose we have no history, um, no denominations, nothing, where would we start? And we suggested we could start with some pretty credible eyewitness records of what Jesus did and said. So that, you know, according to anybody's criteria, we have bona fide reporting of a person in history called Jesus and what he said and did. And that becomes kind of the core of our believing. So we're confused about all kinds of other things concerning church and Christianity and all those things, but we're pretty confident and we are together as Christ followers um, listening to what his friends said, he said, and did. And then we got to the question, well, why? Why did he come? What do we get from all of this? Did he just come to improve religion? Did he just come to give us moral and ethical teaching and guidelines? He came for both of those, but that wasn't enough because the testimony of his friends said that he kept on saying that he came to die, which is beyond fixing religion and beyond moral and ethical teaching. It was some other mission that brought him here. And so we build that out into our understanding of the Christian faith. And as we begin to kind of get our, our orientation to Jesus, then we can build out our understanding of religion and of Christianity beyond him to, to the rest of it. And the most natural place, I think, to go after talking about Jesus is to go to the question of God. So Jesus, we know, claimed to be God, but then we have a whole book that is God's gift to us in which he discloses himself. And, and we confess that we can't know what God is like starting with our own minds. We need to be told. We need to be shown. And so Knowing God will be a series in which we are exploring the question of what is God like? And what does it mean to know God? So Knowing God, and I, I encourage you to buy the book. And I was going to buy a bunch and then sell them to you, but it's so easy to buy from Amazon now. If you, I mean, you can take out your cell phone. It'll probably be on your porch when you get home right? Uh, Knowing God, J.I. Packer. It's a book well worth having. You can get it from Kindle. Um, it can be either an ebook or a real book, whichever is good for you. And if you don't have it on your bookshelf and you have a Christian library of some sort, it belongs there. It is a classic, well worth having. So I had Jim Packer for a professor at Regent College, and um, um, he's a lovely man, but he's very English. You know. So the first day of class, we all had his book because we were required to have the book. 
And so we all scratched out the title on the cover, and instead of it being Knowing God by J.I. Packer, we had Knowing Packer by J.I. God. He walked into the classroom. He looked at the first book and scowled. That was the end of it. So there we are, ashamed, sitting in the classroom of J.I. Packer, ashamed of what we've just done to his book, and we're going to talk about knowing God. It's sort of like, wish I'd missed this class. Great class and a great person in Jim Packer. So what I'd like to do today is, is kind of press a distinction that he makes, which is a very important distinction for all of us in, in this question of knowing God. And uh, I'm going to look at it a few ways, because in, in the beginning of the book, um, Packer says there are two kinds of characters, there, there are two kinds of perspectives on the journey of knowing God. And he calls those two perspectives, um, first of all, balconiers, and then secondly, travelers. And I, I love how he, he makes the distinguish, distinction, and, and I want to show you today that it's, it's probably good for all of us to kind of figure out which one we are, or how much of one or the other we are in the whole question of knowing God. So here are some of the things that he says about this matter of being a balconier or a traveler. Uh, He says, balconiers and travelers may think over the same area, yet their problems differ. Thus, for instance, in relation to evil, the balconier's problem is to find a theoretical explanation of how how evil can exist, can, can consist with God's sovereignty and goodness. But the traveler's problem is how to master evil and bring good out of it. My problem is to try to read a very small script on a small screen. He goes on and says, or take the problem of the Godhead. While the balconier is asking how one God can conceivably be three, what sort of unity three could have and how three who make one can be persons. The traveler wants to know how to show proper honor, love, and trust towards the three persons who are now together at work to bring him out of sin to glory. And then the last quote, he says, or again in relation to sin, the balconier asks whether human sinfulness and personal perversity are really credible, while the traveler, knowing sin from within, asks what hope there is of deliverance. So the balconier is a bit of a theoretician. The balconier um, is interested in theology. The balconier is interested in philosophy. Balconier is interested in doctrine. The traveler, on the other hand, um, is wanting wisdom for the journey. The, the traveler wants to get on with it. And where I'd like us to to sort of um, examine ourselves today is, is in asking the question, which of those is more like me? Am, am I more of a balconier or more of a traveler? And lest we think that one is the right answer and the other not, because it's easy to be sort of pejorative about the balconier and say, so this person doesn't actually care about it being real for him or her. Um, the traveler needs what the balconier wants um, to be his or her guidance to actually live a life of knowing God. So it's important to have both perspectives. The the balconier is very important for us because the balconier is asking hard questions. 
and trying to structure meaning and understanding um, from these sort of disparate ideas or claims that the Bible makes. So you have something like the Trinity, and we'll spend time on the Trinity, um, which is not understandable. So the balconier is, is wondering, how, how, what is this construct that three are one and one are three? And we have, for time immemorial, we have tried to find a good analogy. And there isn't one. So if, if, if you've heard one that you think is brilliant, I promise you it's not. Because the, the egg doesn't work, water doesn't work, father-son relation doesn't work. Because the truth that we're told about the Trinity is so profound that it defies any of those analogies. Each member of the Godhead is fully and thoroughly God. So you, you get to questions like in, in our day, a theological debate that goes on. How could the father murder the son um, as, um, as payment you know, for some for some ransom. Why would the father murder his son? And then you think, but wait a minute, Mr. Balconier or Mrs. Balconier, what do we know? Well, we know that the son is the father. So that immediately begins to shift our figuring it out where we say, well, the father was not just away killing the son. The father was in the son when he died. What does that mean? And then as we go down to the, the traveler, we may say, um, you maybe need to confer a little bit with a balconier because all you talk about is Jesus. You, you don't talk about the Holy Spirit or the Father at all. Or I had a, a friend who was an elder, and he said to me one day, um, do you know that you talk a lot about God as the Father, but you don't talk about Jesus as much? And I, I, I said, that's, it's fascinating. So his, John was his name. I said, John, what does that mean? Well, he says, for me, I have a lot of difficulty with the idea of father. So I sort of have to translate everything you say when it's about father, because I presume you have a good relationship with your father, and, and I don't. So if you tell me more about Jesus, I think it'll get through to me, because with Jesus, I have no issue. So those are the honest conversations of the traveler. And at some point, maybe somebody needs to shout down from the balcony and say, I think you're, you're a little heavy on the Holy Spirit. That's, that's all you seem to talk about. That's all you seem to want about. Um, at the same time, we need to be shouting up to the balcony and say, you need to get off of your high horse and get down here and walk for a while. Because everything makes sense to you up there in your head, but come on down here and see if it works in your feet. So where are you, even as we start to sort of plot this? Are you more of a balconier or more of a traveler? Or if you were to think of the next year in your Christian journey, where do you think the emphasis needs to come? Um, I, I would probably want to say it needs to come in being travelers, because that sounds like the right answer. But for some, sometimes, it's very important for us to make sure that we've got our stuff right, our theory right, our believing right. And especially in a day when it is called into question fairly regularly, and in a day when we have different faiths 
talking with one another, and that's what we need to be doing. The flowers are a lovely indication of that, that let's talk with one another, and let's not be afraid to talk about the hard things that we believe and don't believe. And so when we talk to our Jewish friends and our Muslim friends, we need to have something to say about believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Because that's a showstopper for both of them. It is not possible for a Jewish faithful follower or an Islamic devotee to believe that God has a son. That's blasphemy. So why do we believe that? And that's something that might belong in the domain of the balconier until all of a sudden we're on the journey and we're talking to our neighbors who are Muslim or who are Jewish or some other faith or no other faith. So we need to figure that out a little bit. What's the way that we describe that we believe that God has a son? Because for us, it's all important. And for them, it's a showstopper. Let's, let's go to um, a story in the Old Testament just to further kind of tease this out. So here, here's the story of God's people on their journey. So God's people are travelers. They are on a pilgrimage. Um, they are destined for Canaan, for the promised land. It's God has said to them through Moses that it is an idyllic land. It's a place where, you know, it flows with milk and honey. I mean, the, the most luxuriant of, of substances are, are there, and it's, it's just a beautiful place. So God says to the children of Israel, here you go, get going. He takes them out of Egypt. They are freed from Pharaoh's tyranny. They escape, and they begin their journey. So for 40 years, they're on a journey. It shouldn't have taken them that long. They should have made it in one direct route, but they were a little bit rebellious, and it took them a lot, lot longer. So they wandered around and around and around. But what God did um, was to teach them enormous lessons, and for us as well, um, by the presence of the tabernacle and the encampment um, of the children of Israel. So here's just one little detail of how the camp was set up and what people tended to do. So we're told this in uh, Exodus chapter 33. Anyone who sought God would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud descended to the entrance to the tent, and God spoke with Moses. All the people would see the pillar of cloud at, this, at the entrance to the tent, stand at attention, and then bow down and worship, each at his tent. And God spoke with Moses face to face as neighbors speak to one another. When he would return to the camp, his attendant, the young man Joshua, stayed. He didn't leave the tent. So here's what the encampment looked like. Every time they set up camp, it was like this. Each tribe was given this designated place where the, all of their tents were to be pitched. In the very center of it all is the tabernacle itself. And the tabernacle is, is a lesson in detail of Jesus and the messianic promise and hope and the work of Jesus in salvation for us. So you have a tabernacle proper. At, at the very core of it, at the back of it, is the Holy of Holies. It's the most holy place. And there's only one person goes in there, and that's the high priest. And he goes in once a year, but they have a rope on him to pull him out in case he dies. That's how holy that place was. 
And outside that, there is a holy place, and outside that, there is a court. And then there are tents, um, uh, curtains on poles, and um, certain um, skins that were pitched over top of the, the, the tabernacle proper and so on. And then altars all the way from the Holy of Holies to, to the gate into the tabernacle enclosure. And the Shekinah glory, the, the glory of God, the presence of God, the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day, descended on the Holy of Holies. So all the time there is this cloud that is settled on the tabernacle. And when the cloud moved, Israel moved. That's how they knew it was time to, to clean up camp and get going. So here, the lesson there is phenomenal. I mean, we're told later in John that Jesus tabernacled among us. You know, an incredible um, throwback to the tabernacle itself and, and all that it meant. What does it mean that Jesus pitched his tent among us or, as Peterson says, um, moved into the neighborhood? We'll go back to the tabernacle and see what, what all did that mean because that's what Jesus was doing. So it's a great drama of what Jesus would come to do. And the presence of God was among his people. I mean, there were problems, so they weren't allowed to just walk into his presence because there was sin, there was the corruption that we spent lots of time talking about. Um, but, but here's the design. God is saying, I want to be among my people. I want my people to, to follow me as I lead them. Then we get this story, and if we're thinking carefully, we have a problem with the story. Because look at the language here. Anyone who sought God would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Isn't that weird? Because where is God? He's in the Shekinah glory, right? The pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud, which is not only inside the camp, it's at the very heart of the camp. And yet we're told that when people wanted to ask questions of God, they had to go outside the camp. And it wasn't just to one of the tribes. I mean, you might, maybe it was Levi, because they're the priests, right? So maybe it's, in the, it's, it's outside the camp entirely. So apparently Moses has an acreage, right, that's outside of town. And his tent is there, and his attendant, whose name was Joshua, um, is his manservant or whatever it is, looks after Moses, looks after cleaning and all that kind of thing. And if you wanted to inquire of God, you went outside the camp to this Moses tent. Now, what we're told happens is that when, when the cloud moved to Moses' tent, which is called the tent of meeting, everybody would turn to face that cloud and they would stand at attention and then they would all bow in reverence towards the tent of meeting because God was there. And then Moses would talk to God on behalf of the people. How, how do you envision that? What does it look like when Moses is talking to God? There's, there's a thick cloud at the entrance to Moses' tent. And Moses is in the cloud, and he's talking to God. What does that look like? I would love to be Joshua, right? Joshua's in the tent, and Moses says, 
here he comes again. And God comes in the cloud and he talks to Moses. And then what we're told is absolutely staggering. God spoke with Moses face to face as neighbors speak to one another. Isn't that amazing? So it's, it's not just that there's some angelic presence. It's, it's not even that God speaks words because that has happened. We've seen that before. Somebody goes up on a mountain. There's, there are words. But this says that God spoke to Moses face to face. And then it's clarified, like neighbors do to neighbors. Right? So spring is here. We're all going outside, and we're all having the same conversation with our neighbors, right? Finally, like maybe it's coming. It's they can't wait to be out on the, the deck or when, when spring and summer really get here, right? You don't do that you know, by texting. You don't do it by shouting. You, you do it by walking outside and having a face-to-face conversation with your neighbors. The Bible says that's what it was like to be Moses, that God talked to him face to face, like neighbors talk to neighbors. And Joshua, I don't know why we're told this, but when everything is over, the cloud gets up, moves over to the tabernacle where it belongs, settles back down over the Holy of Holies. Joshua doesn't go back into town. He stays in the tent. What, what, what's he thinking, right? I mean, you Joshua has just had a, a near-God experience. His master, Moses, he has, he's heard his master talking to God. And I'm thinking he has heard the voice of God talking back to his master. And now that, that's gone until next time. Joshua was being prepared to know the voice of God and to follow the voice of God to be the next leader of the children of Israel. Two things are important um, by way of terminology, two words. The first, first word is transcendent, and the word after transcendent is the word imminent. So I'm, I'm not going to use a whole lot of theological jargon, but these two we can hang a lot of information on. What was going on in the, in, in the encampment of Israel was, was the proper ambivalence um, between these two truths, be, between these two poles. We are properly confused in the best sense of the word. We are properly ambivalent over God's transcendence and yet his imminence. And the camp is a drama of that. The camp is about the transcendence of God, that you can't go near him. They're warned not to go near him. Um, And they don't want to go near him. They're afraid to go near him. So when Moses is up in the mountain getting the rules, they say, don't let God come down here. They were terrified of him. And God said, don't let them come near me or I'll consume them. That's transcendence, that he is beyond us. He is beyond He's beyond spatially, um, he's beyond in terms of his 
personality and person and character and works and ways and everything. He is thoroughly transcendent. So the camp is a story about that that says, okay, they can come and talk to me, but no, not in the tabernacle because things aren't fixed yet. We have a problem, me, God, and you, humans. So we'll keep it outside the camp because I want you to know that I am your God. But you can't just walk in my presence willy-nilly. Um, I was at a, a lunch one time in, in the sev- early 70s. And it was, it was in the sort of the Jesus movement days. And there was a, a pastor, a, a reverend of some kind, who was saying grace. And he got up and he said, Ta-pa. He sat down. The moderator was a more formal fellow, and he got up and said, shame on you. Let's pray a proper prayer. What would you think? Is anything wrong with Tapa? No? Not if you get in the New Testament and Jesus says, so call him daddy. But what was he forgetting? That Isaiah 6 says, there are angelic beings whose job always, 24-7, is to fly around saying, holy, holy, holy. So we are properly ambivalent that God is absolutely holy and other, and um, he, he lives in, in unapproachable light. And yet he also says to us through his son, you can call me daddy. You can call me Abba. God is far from us and near to us all at the same time, and it's all the same God. So we need to be careful to, to, to weigh the distance between these two and make sure that we hold them in tension. Is, is the God, and one of the things that has been said, um, and, and more heresy in this than anything else that gets said around Christian circles, is I like to think that God, finish the sentence, so in my harsher moments, the way I used to be, um, I'd say it really doesn't matter. What doesn't matter? What you think, right? You can think whatever you want God is like. You can want God to be whatever you like. But you better have some way that that is backed up with some sort of authority. So I talked to a young man years and years ago, and he he was struggling with his Christian faith, he said, and he, um, he, was, he was a seminary student, and um, he said, I just, I just don't think this is going anywhere, just his whole vocation and all that. And then, I don't know why, but he started spilling the beans, and it turned out he was having an affair um, with the daughter of one of the elders in our church. He said, you think that's why I'm having problems? It's one of those moments. <laughs> All the things I thought I could say, but I, I didn't. He said, but I know God is loving and forgiving, and I know God understands. Her marriage is not good. They're going to get divorced. I think it's fine. I like to think that God thinks that's fine. Well, you know what? It's not, right? But, but you may not be making those kinds of claims, but there probably are things that you're saying, in, at least in your own head, I'm sure God is fine with this. Um, 
Or I, I, I like to think that God is like, like this. Well, God is both other and near at the same time. He is both furious at the corruption and merciful and gracious to anyone that will turn towards him all at the same time. So you have to be careful. Where's the pendulum, right? And this is not a, a, a complete parallel, but it, it, it does take us back to the balcony and the traveler. And I think to some degree what we will want to do in this series is to talk about the transcendence of God as balconiers. I mean, what are the lofty things we believe about God? You know, what does it mean that he dwells in unapproachable light? Um, what is his being like? What was going on with this same character when he said, show me your glory, and God said, you can't see my face. Then go, wait, but you, he did see your face. Didn't he see your face? But I will hide you, and I will put my hand so you can't see, and I will declare my name. What does all that mean? I mean, it's, it's phenomenal, lofty theology. So the study of God is called theology proper. There are all kinds of other theologies, but none of them is theology proper. Knowing God, knowing about him, and knowing him is the highest calling and the highest pursuit that we can find ourselves involved in. So where are you this morning, on, on the balcony or on, on this, the path? It's okay. Both places are great. Where does your attention need to be taken in the next several months? Do you need to get up on a balcony? Or do you need to get some distance on the pathway, or both? Do you need to plan a stop every now and then at a balcony? I don't know if there are many stops on the balconies that I had in the pictures, but there are lots of balcony stops for us. Every Sunday could be a balcony stop, and then we can go back on the pathway and, and walk some more. I, I encourage you to get the book also for the sake of their questions. There are discussion questions for every chapter and either personally or if you wanted to hook up with a friend if you want to come here and sit around tables and talk about those questions week by week we'll, we'll stay on track with um, the order of the chapters in the book so feel free to do that but uh, go ahead and get Knowing God it is worthwhile the book Knowing Packer is not worth anything at all except a collector somewhere I suppose um, God spoke to Moses face to face as neighbors speak to one another. I've known folks that I think have that experience who seem to walk really closely with the Lord. And for me, they used to be people much older than me. There aren't many people anymore much older than me. And I loved, I just knew who they were. They were the people who would start conversations and invariably there would be tears early in the conversation as they would go into the place in their minds and hearts where they knew God and where he had met them, had spoken to them and had listened to them. Um, and, and I envy that. I envy the ability to stop long enough to talk and listen I envy the ability to let the balcony inform the pathway 
instead of me choosing the pathway and it usually going off track, right? It's a basic idea that says we are on a journey. It's a journey of knowing God and there's good information on the balcony to be had and to be used as we go. Knowing God. To be able to say, I know God. Amazing thing. There's that song, He Knows My Name. That God knows, God knows your name. He knows all about you. And he loves you dearly, dearly. And the one who loves you is Almighty God. And the angels are fascinated in the fact that he loves you. They're staring down at you, wondering what it is that the Lord finds so nice about you. That he's given his son, he's given his life. And he is devoted, caring for you. So it's a great pursuit to know God. And we know that that's true in our heads, but I promise you it is life-giving in our days and weeks and months. So I invite you into this whole process of holding his transcendence and his imminence in the proper ambivalence and always being kind of able to take our bearings and know where we are. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for everything that you are, for what you are and who you are, what you've done, what you are doing, what you will do, that you know us and love us, that you're full of mercy and grace. Lord, we bless you and pray that you will invite us into a a journey of, of knowing you, of being well related to you and uh, father we we pray you'll enlighten our minds enlighten our hearts and then prepare our hands and feet in jesus name